1: I'm Kathy with a K.
2: And I'm Kathy with a C. And
1: here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Acme, Washington. Acme is a rural village located in northern Washington state, about 20 miles south of the Canadian border. The village is 9.8 square miles, and in 2020, it had a population of 123 residents. The village consists of a general store, post office, gas station, diner, elementary school, and two churches. Acme is in the South Fork Valley between the Northern Cascade Mountains and Lake Whatcom, and the scenery surrounding the village is what draws people to the area. Lake Whatcom is known for being surrounded by hills, waterfalls, and giant old Douglas fir trees. There are trails for hiking or biking along the lake shore and is a hot spot for photographers looking to capture the area's ethereal beauty. Acme is situated in Whatcom County, which was officially created by the Washington Territorial Legislature in March 1854. Because of Acme's size, everyone knows everyone else, and its rustic and outdoorsy setting makes it a great place to raise a family. There's a sense of security knowing that someone else is always looking out for your children. But just because you have this sense of security, doesn't mean that it's always warranted. And in 1989, residents unfortunately learned that just because we know our neighbors doesn't mean
2: we shouldn't fear them. In late November 1989, 18-year-old Mandy Stavick was home from her freshman year at Central Washington University to spend Thanksgiving with her family her mother, her 22-year-old sister, Molly, and her 13-year-old brother, Lee. She'd brought home her roommate, a young woman named Yoko, who was a foreign exchange student from Japan. Mandy had moved to Acme from Alaska, where she'd been born, after her father and mother got divorced. When her mother moved to Washington, Mandy, her sister Molly, and her brother Lee went with her. Her father remained in Alaska, along with Mandy's older sister, Mary Alice, And stepsister Bridget. Mandy and Yoko caught a ride home to Acme with Mandy's former boyfriend, Rick Zender, who was also a student at Central Washington University. Rick dropped off Mandy and Yoko at the Stavak home around 2 p.m. on Wednesday, November 22, 1989. Later that afternoon, the two young women went to Mandy's former high school during the girls' basketball practice to visit friends. On Thanksgiving, Mandy and Yoko spent the entire day at home with her family. And Kath, I think it's kind of funny that we're doing a Thanksgiving episode so soon after Thanksgiving, <laughs> like we kind of missed it here.
1: You know, we're not always the most organized as exactly. we could be.
2: <laughs> but I want to say that this was the first Thanksgiving that I did not make anything in advance. I was so so disorganized and
1: And you didn't
2: make any desserts. I didn't. I We brought them all. Yeah, and I farmed things out. I told also told my daughters like you guys make things if you want dessert, <laughs> but I was totally <laughs> like you know, it's like I always envy people like Trish cuz she's so organized. And her food is amazing. I know, she's ridiculous. Yes. But anyway, so While I was cooking on Thursday morning at 7 a.m., I was listening to music and also listening to some YouTube videos about the first Thanksgiving, and I learned, I did not know this, that there were only 53 pilgrims at the original Thanksgiving and only four adult women. Isn't that like shockingly small? It is. I want to say there were right around 100 pilgrims on the Mayflower. Right. I want to it say just it was over
1: like, that something like that. Yeah.
2: And I think that there were like 16 women who died by the time Thanksgiving rolled around the following year. They were. Well, then so, who cooked it for they them? They were celebrating the harvest. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's honestly, truly. Yeah, no, I'm serious. Yeah, there were four adult women, 22 men, and the rest were teens and children. So the assumption is that the teens helped as well. And the interesting part, and I wish I could remember the name of the guy who wrote the letter, most of the information from the first Thanksgiving came from a letter that was written by one of the men that was there. To whom? I don't remember. Like to people back in England? I have a feeling it was to people back in England. And calf. I want to say there were 90 Wampanoag Indians and they brought venison, which fed everybody. When I was listening to the video Honestly, what we learned when we were kids was largely true. Not necessarily the numbers, but I'm just saying like the good feelings. It was a sharing of the harvest. Right. You know. Thank you for that history lesson. You're so welcome. (laughs) I know our listeners are appreciative too. (laughs) I think it is kind of funny, especially because tonight I actually went to a Christmas party.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the day after Thanksgiving, Mandy spent the morning hanging out and eating leftovers with her family and then took a walk with Yoko. She made plans with Yoko to go out that evening with one of Mandy's high school friends, a guy named Brad Gorham, and his friend Tom Bass. Sometime between 2 and 3 p.m., Mandy decided to go for a run with the family's six-year-old German shepherd, Kyra. Her brother, Lee, had been at a neighbor's house around 3 p.m. when he saw Mandy through the neighbor's window, jogging in the direction of their house, which was only about 100 yards away. Remember, we talked about Acme. It's a very rural area. So even though this is kind of the main drag outside of town, this is where a lot of the people lived, the fact is, is that the houses were very spread apart. And so the hundred yards away that the Stavik house was from the neighbors was probably nobody in between that. So when Lee returned home 15 minutes later, he was surprised Mandy wasn't there. When Mandy's mom got home about 90 minutes later, Lee told her about Mandy not being home and Mrs. Stavik became worried. She and Lee went out driving around their neighborhood looking for signs of Mandy, but didn't see anything. But when they got home about an hour later, Mrs. Stavick's blood ran cold. Frantically pacing in front of the house was their dog, Kyra. The dog was cowering, and she was wet, muddy, and alone. Mrs. Stavick immediately called 911. Almost all of the following information comes from journalists Carol Firm and Kathy Logg with the Bellingham Herald. The Whatcom County Sheriff's Office began to search immediately. Everyone was worried because Mandy was not the sort of person to just disappear. She was very level headed, and her mom said that if she could call, she would have. As word spread throughout their small community, neighbors came one by one to the Stabwick House. Some brought food, some joined the search and all offered sympathy and words of support. Brad Gorham and Tom Bass, these are the two guys Mandy and Yoko planned to go to a movie with that night, and Mandy's ex-boyfriend Rick Zender also showed up to help look for Mandy when they heard of her disappearance. Searchers fanned out across the area. Dozens of people on horseback, on foot, and bloodhounds all searched every trail and every hillside for some sign
2: of Mandy. As Friday turned into Saturday, County Search and Rescue and other volunteers continued to search in a four-mile radius around her home and farther along the South Fork Valley of the Nooksack River. Among those who joined the search on early Saturday morning were a mounted Whatcom County Sheriff's posse, a U.S. Customs airplane, two bloodhounds, and a helicopter that was being flown by a family friend. Also included in the group was U.S. Border Patrol Special Agent Joel Harden, who was a train tracker. Agent Harden repeatedly searched the stretch of road where Mandy disappeared and found no sign that she had left the road. However, he also noted that the area received significant rainfall after Mandy was last seen, but before the search started. When Agent Harden met with sheriff's deputies later on Saturday afternoon... He had to deliver the grim news that they had not been able to find any sign of Mandy. By late Saturday, after 20 hours of exhaustive searching, they had not been able to find anything. By late Sunday afternoon, after almost 48 hours of looking for Mandy, the search came to a halt. Searchers and law enforcement could not think of anything else they could do to try to find her. They believe they had searched every conceivable road, trail, and pathway in the area. Sheriff Mount announced that Monday morning, investigators plan to travel to the south fork of the Nooksack River by boat, looking for any possible clues to Mandy's disappearance.
1: And you know what's interesting about this, Kathy, is that we did an episode early on in our podcast, it was episode 29, about Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenborg they also went missing out of northern washington and at the time that this case was happening the case was still unsolved so mandy's case was just one of three cases in this small rural area within the past couple of years where they had somebody who had disappeared and they didn't know where they were I just think like it's such a large... It's not Southern California. It's not Seattle. That's right. just crazy. And the Jay Cook, Tanya Van Kylenborg episode was awesome. It was oh, recommended lo- to us by a listener. Yeah,
2: I love that episode. Yeah.
1: So we recommend listening to it if you haven't already. Anyway, by early Monday morning, Mandy's mom said she still hoped for her daughter's safe return. But she admitted that keeping her hope alive became more and more difficult as the hours went by. That same morning... Mandy's body was found by a member of the search team who was a volunteer firefighter trained in river rescue. Mandy was found in shallow, slow-moving water caught in some tree branches. It was about three and a half miles from where she was last seen jogging Friday afternoon. Mandy's body was nude except for the running shoes she was wearing when she disappeared. There was no obvious cause of death and an autopsy was scheduled to begin later that same day. The day after Mandy's body was found, law enforcement and volunteers continued to search for clues. They were looking for anything, a footprint, piece of clothing, tire track, anything that could be tied to her murder. Whatcom County Sheriff's Deputy Tim Ortner and three other investigators spent hours on Tuesday combing the banks of the Nooksack River, as well as abandoned buildings and remote places where Mandy's abductor could have taken her after she disappeared.
2: Investigators found footprints and tire tracks in a nearby field known to locals as the homestead, which was an isolated hangout for teenagers, but they were unable to determine if these were related to the crime because of the number of people who'd been in the area. They found no other tracks or signs of disturbance near the riverbank where they found Mandy's body. The autopsy conducted by Dr. Gary Goldfogel indicated no defensive injuries to Mandy's hands no foreign DNA under her fingernails, and no evidence of strangulation or anything to suggest she had been bound in any way. There was, however, significant blunt force trauma to Mandy's forehead. Dr. Goldfogel also noted there were more scratches on the front and sides of Mandy's legs than on the back. Many of the scratches were parallel, indicating she was in motion when they were made and the overall condition of the scratches suggested that they occurred while she was still alive the doctor opined that these scratches were consistent with someone running through brush such as the thorny blackberry bushes found along the riverbank where her body was found the medical examiner's initial determination was that the evidence from the autopsy was inconclusive and would only say that Mandy's cause of death was not inconsistent with drowning. The freezing cold water in the river also prevented them from determining the precise time of Mandy's death.
1: Kath, fewer than 24 hours after Mandy disappeared, even before her body was found, her friends and neighbors had raised more than $8,100 to create a reward for any information leading to her return or the arrest and conviction of her abductor. In twenty twenty-three dollars, that is actually more than twenty thousand dollars. By early Monday morning, more than a hundred people had donated to this fund. And Kath, the other thing that I read that was so heartbreaking is that a few days after Mandy's body was found, one of the newspaper articles revealed that Mandy's death was not the first tragedy experienced by her family. In August of nineteen seventy-five, so this was 14 years before Mandy was murdered, her 16-year-old brother Brent died of multiple gunshot wounds to his head and chest area when he was out bow hunting on a military reservation in Anchorage. The murder was investigated, but never solved. That is so sad. Mrs. Stavik actually made the comment that when you experience something like that, somebody in your family being killed, a child in your family being killed, you never expect to have that happen to you again.
2: No, for real. And it did. Ugh.
1: Mandy's father, Glenn, said that no one ever found any clues or any reason why his son was murdered. But in addition to this, Kath, Glenn's 20-year-old stepson had actually died the year before Mandy when he drowned in a boating
2: accident on the Kenai River. Can you imagine three kids? No. That is so insane. That's so freaking sad. It's devastating. Yeah. Yeah. On Sunday,
1: December 3rd, 1989, just six days after Mandy's body was found, a public memorial service was held in the auditorium at Mount Baker High School. More than a thousand people attended. The service was very emotional and laughter was mingled with tears, which actually reminds me of my mom's funeral.
2: I do remember the laughter being mingled with tears.
1: So an interesting thing happened at my mom's funeral. There were two eulogies being given. I did one and Kathy did the other. So we met with the pastor prior to the ceremony. This wasn't somebody we knew, but he wanted to talk to us for a few minutes before the service started. He knew both of us were named Kathy, and we had even made a comment that clearly we don't look alike. We're not actual sisters, but mom always thought of her as a daughter. So Kathy went first, and the pastor introduced her as my mom's daughter, Kathy. (laughs) Several minutes later, (laughs) she had another daughter named Kathy. And I believe the smartass remark that came out of my mouth was, don't worry about it. She spelled it differently. So we're fine.
2: (laughs) That was so funny. And here's her daughter, Kathy. (laughs) But he didn't actually seem fazed by saying it a second time. That's what was so funny. uh, That was funny.
1: Yes. And we made everyone laugh. (laughs) 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 And then we made them cry. (laughs) We did. Anyway, after moving to Washington State when Mandy was 12, she thrived in Acme, and as much as she loved her hometown, she was loved in return by her community. Mandy was an ambitious student at Mount Baker. She was on the honor roll throughout school. She was elected as ASB treasurer by her classmates, but in addition to her intelligence, she was a talented athlete. She played varsity girls softball as a freshman, sophomore, and junior, varsity girls basketball as a junior and senior and was a football cheerleader her senior year as well. She was also trained as a lifeguard and loved to swim. Two of her uncles spoke for her family during the 90-minute service. One uncle said, When we felt fear and anger, you gave us love. When we felt grief, you grieved too. Here in the depths of mourning, we can feel healing begin. Despite the grief felt by everyone at the service, Mandy's former coach, Jim Freeman, brought laughter as well. In his speech, he said Mandy had a mischievous sense of humor and a boundless enjoyment of life, and through his stories, he vividly reminded everyone of the Mandy they knew and loved.
2: At the press conference after the service, Mandy's mother thanked the community for their support and prayers. She said she was amazed by the number of people who had been affected by her daughter's death. She said she had no idea that Mandy had touched so many lives. The day after Mandy's funeral, Monday, December 4th, 1989, Whatcom County authorities announced the results of Mandy's autopsy. The cause of death was actually determined to be freshwater drowning. During the autopsy, Dr. Goldfogel found semen and, based on the sperm count, concluded sexual intercourse had occurred no more than 12 hours before Mandy's death. Dr. Goldfogel preserved the samples he collected and sent them to the FBI and the Washington State Patrol crime lab for analysis. The crime lab was able to develop a DNA profile from the sperm. Now, Kath, this is 1989, obviously. We just said that 75 times. But the FBI crime lab at this point is in the baby stages They started actually collecting DNA samples to create this database beginning in 1989, the year Manny was murdered. But I don't think that the FBI had a database that contained DNA from all 50 states, until like the mid-90s.
1: You're exactly right. It was 1990 when they came up with this idea, but it wasn't until federal legislation was enacted in 1994 that they were granted the authority to begin collecting DNA for law enforcement purposes.
2: So when you say in 1990, they began the idea, you're talking about having a 50 statewide database.
1: Correct. But they needed congressional approval to be able to use the federal funds and have one place to gather all this evidence. So I believe it became enacted in all 50 states around like 1997, 1998. Once the legislation was enacted, you got to do the funding and then you've got to start doing all the collection.
2: But they had been collecting since 89. But not from every state. They began the process of collecting. Almost two months after Manny was found in the river, detectives had talked to a lot of people. Many of them, including Manny's ex-boyfriend, Rick, were eliminated through alibis or DNA. Undersheriff Doug Gill said they were still looking at several people who they had not been able to eliminate. As time went by, the number of full-time investigators assigned to Mandy's case was reduced and the initial deluge of leads and tips dwindled.
1: Despite the efforts by investigators, eventually Mandy's case went cold. Fast forward to 2009, 20 years after Mandy's murder. Whatcom County Sheriff's Detective Kevin Bowie reopened the investigation and began asking for DNA samples from anyone who lived in the area or who may have had contact with Mandy near the time of her death. Over the course of this reopened investigation, Detective Bowie and his team collected more than 80 DNA samples for testing, which sounds like a large number when we're talking about fewer than 300 people living there, but I know they were also going into the larger area. But despite collecting all of these DNA samples, none of them were a match.
2: Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food.
1: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20 minute video explaining step by step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes
2: in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
1: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown.
2: or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash Killer D. Four years later, now this is almost 25 years after Mandy was murdered, Whatcom County Sheriff's detectives received an unexpected break. According to an episode of 48 Hours entitled, The Case No One Could Forget, on a sunny Friday afternoon in June of 2013, Heather Backstrom and Marilee Anderson, two mothers who lived near Bellingham, Washington, which was about 25 miles from Acme, each decided to take their young children to a waterslide park. Heather and Lee had both gone to Mount Baker High School in Acme, but didn't know each other well. On this Friday afternoon, they were getting to know each other as they were sitting among a group of other moms chatting about their families, their lives, and their hometown of Acme. And it's my understanding, Kath, that they didn't go there together or even like as a mom's group. They... Showed up with their kids and happened to recognize each other, and then just start chatting together. And randomly, Kath, one of the mothers, brought up the unsolved rape and murder of 18-year-old Mandy Stabic, and it was sort of this infamous case. According to Heather Backstrom, the tragedy of Mandy's case remained a topic of conversation in Acme despite the amount of time that had passed. So while Marilee and Heather are chatting about this. Heather suddenly blurts out, I know who killed her. Marilee stared at her in stunned silence, then quietly replied, I do too. The two women then told each other stories about their encounters with a local Acme man around the time of Mandy's murder. Lee told the story about a man who was also a Mount Baker graduate and a friend of her husband's. She said he stopped by her house a couple of years after Mandy's murder. And Kath, what happens is she's at home alone with her baby. There's a knock on the door. She opens the door and she sees this man she recognized from high school. And he says, hey, I've been out hunting and I need to use your phone. So she goes, okay. So she lets him in and he dials the number and Lee could hear the, you know, that doo-doo-doo, like the sound that happens when the number isn't working. Right. It's... Like
1: bing, bang, bong, not working. Right. Exactly.
2: <laughs> so then Lee got the sinking feeling that maybe he had lied to her.
1: Like it was an excuse to get into her house.
2: Correct. So Lee then told Heather that the man walked through her kitchen where they were standing and back into her bedroom making gestures, inviting her to follow him. And then he tells Mary Lee that he used to drive by the house where she lived with her husband. And he said he'd always been in love with her and he wanted to make love to her. So she, of course, is freaking out. And especially without her husband at home.
1: And her little infant son.
2: Exactly. And now she realizes she's with a predator. Yeah. So she keeps saying, no, 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 no. And he kept trying to convince her to come into the bedroom with him. Finally, she told him, look, I'm going to call the police and, you know, whatever. You got to go. She doesn't even remember how exactly she got him out of her house. All she remembers is that she got him out of her house. And really, that's all that matters. Oh, yeah. Super scary. So hearing this story, Heather Backstrom told Mara Lee that they were talking about the same person, Tim Bass. Heather said she had a very uncomfortable experience with him. It wasn't quite as dramatic as Marilyn's But she said, just months before Mandy Stavick's murder, Heather was 15 years old. She gets a ride home from a softball game with a young man named Dan, whom Heather later married. Also on the ride home was Tim Bass, who was 21 at the time. So he was six years older than her. So they're all friends. They know each other. No one's romantically involved. And Heather is the monkey in the middle. She's sitting in the front seat of the truck in the middle. Dan's driving, and Tim Bass starts flirting. And what she said was that his flirtation was very aggressive. He was saying, you have beautiful eyes, just giving her all these kind of unwanted and aggressive compliments. Then he took a pen out of the cup holder and started rubbing it along her knees. That's creepy. Yeah, I thought that was a little ugh. Anyway, so he's rubbing this pen along her leg, like probably trying, you know, thinking he's Mr. Sexy or something. I have no idea. Anyway, she was very uncomfortable, but just played along. And she figured since Dan was there, nothing is going to go beyond this flirtation.
1: Assuming Dan would protect her. Yeah. Should he go too far? Something.
2: Heather was extremely creeped out. And the incident always stuck in her memory. Now, Kat, this is 25 years later. She still remembers how creeped out she was. And she told Lee that from that day forward, she always made a point of trying to avoid any contact with Bass. But you know what I think is interesting? The thing that happened to Heather was very creepy, but it wouldn't necessarily be something that you think like, oh, that guy's a murderer. But primally and instinctively, She she knew it was wrong. She knew. She knew this
1: was a guy to avoid at all costs. Totally.
2: I totally had neighbors like this growing up. Did you? No. What?
1: No. Like, you lived so close to us, but your neighborhood was scary. (laughs) Like, I look back on it, and I'm like, it just seemed... I don't know if it was... Your neighborhood was a little bit larger. It was a bigger tract of homes than ours Oh, bigger tract, yeah. But not that... I mean, I I don't know. You had a lot more guys in your neighborhood, actually, than we did, too.
2: Oh, we had tons of boys. We had mostly girls. Yeah. I feel like the boys definitely outnumbered the girls. We just had total bullies. We just had creepy. There are three people I could think right off the top of my head right now that are probably in prison.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, after we finish doing this, we're going (laughs) to check.
2: We have got to look them up. Like, honestly, some super creeps.
1: Is there one that sticks out in your mind all this time later like it did with Heather?
2: Dude, I'm telling you there's three, but there was one in particular I remember when my parents were having an addition put on their house. And so that my they had to create a crawl space under this new addition. And so there was an entrance from outside. It would be like just where you could get under this.
1: Like a crawl space under the house. Yeah.
2: But one of my neighbors, like I come home and he's at my house and he's got a, like a stick in his hand or something. And I see that he is scratched. They had just made this like entrance to the underneath of the house. Like <laughs> there's a crawl space. space. Yeah. <laughs> and the cement was still wet. And so I was like, what are you doing? And he wrote on there. She brings me in here. Meaning like you. Me. I was like, oh, I'm I, sorry.
1: I, how old were you at this time? Oh, God. Like 12.
2: I don't even know how old I was. I don't even know if I was that old. I don't even remember. That's creepy.
1: How old was the guy? Do you remember that? See one was, of the ones we need to check for he incarceration was, oh,
2: 100%. Okay. We'll do that. Yeah, but uh, I can't even tell you like when I'd be like riding my bright orange skateboard.
1: <laughs> Mine da- was
2: red. Down the street, <laughs> I there were there were many houses that I just totally hauled ass by. Wow. Yeah, don't even look, don't make eye contact, just go. And
1: you know what's funny is is you guys actually had quite a few law enforcement families there.
2: Yeah. Our neighborhood was nicknamed Cop Flats. Isn't that funny?
1: I never knew that.
2: Oh, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, they weren't doing their job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or they were and were never home. They were helping the other people in the city. Exactly.
2: So anyway, Marilee and Heather, for years, both had thoughts that if Bass behaved this way toward them, it was conceivable that he had done the same thing to other women or maybe even Mandy. But they had nothing concrete other than their own suspicions, so they never went to the police and told them a name.
1: Well, I can imagine that'd be really hard in a small town too. Oh, totally. I mean, a super small town.
2: Yeah. They basically said they were scared because like you said, the town was small and neither wanted to accuse someone of something unless they knew for sure.
1: That could destroy somebody's reputation in that town if they Mm -hmm, were, mm -hmm. if they were innocent.
2: Yeah. So after this conversation, 25 years after Mandy's murder, Merrily contacted a high school classmate who was a detective with the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office and told him of their suspicions about Bass. The two women could never have imagined the incredible impact their decision that day would have on their community.
1: According to court records, in 2013, after receiving the tip from Merrily and Heather, Detective Bowie reached out to Tim Bass and asked for a DNA sample. When the detective told Bass he was investigating Mandy's death, Bass said he didn't really know Mandy and didn't want to provide DNA without a warrant. The detective knew he didn't have enough probable cause for a warrant at that time, so no DNA was taken. Almost two years later, detectives again contacted Bass. This is now February of 2015, in relation to the Mandy Stavik investigation. They still didn't have enough to get a search warrant, so Bass again refused. As a result, Detective Bowie decided to try a different approach. At this time, Bass was working as a delivery truck driver at a bakery. Detective Bowie reached out to a woman named Kim Wagner, who was the manager of the bakery outlet store where Bass worked. He was hoping to obtain company consent to swab the delivery trucks for touch DNA, the DNA left behind when people touch or use something. Detective Bowie didn't identify the employee he was investigating, but regardless, Kim told the detective that he would need to talk with the corporate offices in order to get permission for this kind of search. She provided him with a phone number for the corporate office, but the company refused to give permission for law enforcement to search any of its vehicles. Over two years later, in May of 2017, so this is now four years after Heather and Lee shared their suspicions about Tim Bass, Detective Bowie contacted Kim Wagner again and asked her for the general areas of Bass's delivery route. The detective told Kim he was looking for items that Bass might throw away that could contain his DNA. So Kim gave Detective Bowie the information he wanted. So Kath, what happens is now that Detective Bowie knows Bass's route, he starts following him. But Bass never threw anything away in public. Who did we talk about recently who did that, where I made the comment like I never threw anything away out of my car either? We talked about someone re- like another. We
2: did in our who last was it? couple episodes. Yeah,
1: we did so many in the last three weeks. I can't weeks. Even remember. I, yeah. I don't remember. Okay, but listen to our episodes. Let us we, know who we're, we're forgetting. But we sure it was a good story. <laughs> it really is the best. <laughs> we actually recorded eight episodes in two weeks. Yeah, exactly. Which we never do. No, never. So it's a little fuzzy. Sorry. Mm-hmm. We'll listen to it again. We'll get We'll get up to speed.
2: So if at some point they get boring, it's because we were just really freaking tired. (laughs) We were
1: really busy. We were busy. We had
2: to get this stuff done. Mm -hmm.
1: Anyway, Detective Bowie shared with Kim that he hadn't been able to get anything that was discarded. And so she implied that she would see if she could get any discarded items at work if that would help the case. Detective Bowie made it very clear that he was not asking her to do this or do anything on behalf of the police department regarding this case. About three months later, in August of 2017, Kim saw Bass drink water from a plastic cup and throw the cup away in the bakery's employee break room. She collected the cup and stored it in a plastic bag in her desk drawer. Then two days later, she saw Bass drink from a soda can and again threw it away. She got this as well and stored it with the cup. She then contacted Detective Bowie to let him know that she had two items that potentially contained Bass's DNA. He met with Kim in the bakery's parking lot, picked up the two items, and sent them to the Washington State Crime Lab for analysis. The DNA was a match.
2: In December 2017, Timothy Bass was arrested and charged with first-degree felony murder, rape and kidnapping, and the murder of Mandy Stavik. In pretrial motions, the trial court denied Bass's motion to suppress the DNA evidence obtained from items Kim Wagner collected at the bakery. And Kath, what I think happened was the defense was like, hey, Kim Wagner was being your agent. You didn't have enough probable cause to have a warrant. So you basically told her to go onto this private property and do a warrantless search of Bass's DNA kind of thing. The judge admitted the evidence, basically saying it was made clear that the detective was not asking her to do this, nor was she acting as his agent. She was just simply doing it on her own. Trial began in May 2019. The prosecutor for the case was a man named David McEachran. He was a former longtime Whatcom County prosecuting attorney. And Kath, what's funny is he retired in 2018, nearly six months before the trial began. But he came back and he's like, I was 44 years old at the time Mandy was killed. And I remember everything about this. And he
1: was involved in it.
2: Yes. And he was involved in it and he wanted to come back and try it. And he didn't charge the county any money. He basically did it pro bono. And he was freaking 73 years old when he led the prosecution's team. Wow. I know. So the prosecution's case was simple. Bass's DNA was found on Mandy. He's the murderer. But the defense case was saying, hey, look, Bass and Mandy had consensual sex and the hours before her murder. So yes, his DNA was there. But no, he did not kill her.
1: During one police interview, and Kath, this was the second time that they had approached him. This is now 2015. He told detectives that he and Mandy had been secretly hooking up and nobody knew about it. It was something they were keeping secret from everybody. Now, it was actually interesting, though, because if you remember in 2013, when he spoke to Detective Bowie, he didn't really remember her. And now he's saying, well, we were hooking up that whole time. So it was just it was kind of the information that he was giving them wasn't consistent throughout.
0: So they really weren't
1: sure kind of what to believe. And here's the other thing that was interesting, Kathy. Police learned that Tim had actually gotten married just six months after Mandy's murder. How old was he? He was 22 when he got married. I believe he was 21 at the time Mandy was killed.
2: Bass's ex-wife, Gina Malone, who divorced him after 27 years of marriage... And the divorce happened, Kath, after he was arrested and started telling people he had an affair with Mandy. Anyway, she also testified. She dropped a bombshell when she was on the stand. She said that several days after Bass's second contact with detectives, so again, this is 2015, she was with Bass and his mother, Sandra, at Sandra's house. Gina told the jury that Bass asked Sandra if she would agree to tell police that Bass's deceased father had killed Mandy. Gina testified that Sandra covered her face with her hands and just sat silently and then said no. Bass's younger brother, Tom, also took the stand for the prosecution. Now, Tom Bass was one of the people that Mandy and Yoko were supposed to go to the movies with that night. He testified that after police interviewed his brother in 2015, his brother became anxious and told him that he was worried because he'd had sex with Mandy when she was home for Thanksgiving in 1989. Bass also told his brother Tom that he and Mandy had slept together a couple times before she'd gone off to college. So Tom testified about these conversations, and he also said that Bass asked him to tell the police that Tom had also slept with Mandy, as if to imply Mandy had slept around. You know, what's interesting, Kathy, is I am sure if he was asking his mother, hey, do you mind if I blame it on dad? And then he was telling Tom, hey, tell them you slept with her too. I know in my heart, he's thinking somehow that the DNA will be like familial DNA and the, and the police will be so confusing, won't be able to tell whose it is. Like you know? it'll be
1: similar enough.
2: Something. That he
1: can blame somebody else, clearly not understanding how DNA works. Yes. And it is now 2019.
2: Exactly.
1: Kath, I hadn't thought of it that way at all, but you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's why he was asking Tom. It wasn't necessarily the, oh, let's make her look like she was, you know, a loose woman. Right. I don't know why I came up with that colloquialism. <laughs> <laughs> She was a harlot. Yeah. And it wasn't like they were twins, but you've got two brothers
2: now right. who you're saying, nope, it was nope, his DNA, it was not him. mine. Nope, it was him. Bastard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition, Tom told the jury that after his brother's arrest, Tom and his mom visited Bass in jail a number of times. Tom said that on one of these visits, Bass said the cops were lying. Everybody was out to get him. Everybody was lying. He said he needed a good, strong alibi or he was going to prison. Then he said, Mom, maybe you can say that we were Christmas shopping together.
1: (laughs) (laughs) First, let me blame your dead husband. Yeah, yeah. And now let's get you caught in line. Let's
2: get you involved in perjury. So as far as the defense went, they brought forward Dr. Elizabeth Johnson and the point of her testimony was to refute the medical examiner's testimony that the sex had occurred within 12 hours of Mandy's death. Dr. Johnson testified that her independent examination of sperm samples led her to believe that it was more likely that sex occurred between 24 and 48 hours before Mandy died. However, on cross-examination, Dr. Johnson said she could not rule out a time frame As short as one to six hours before Mandy's death. So it didn't sound like she helped the defense too much.
1: It doesn't sound like that at all. Yeah. After nine days of trial, the case went to the jury. On May 24th, 2019, this was exactly 29 years and six months to the day after Mandy Stavick was killed, the six man, six woman jury found now 51 year old Timothy Bass guilty of murder, rape, and kidnapping. Six weeks later, there was a sentencing hearing. Mary Stavick and her daughter Molly were too emotional to speak, so Mary's husband, Mike Brighton, read a letter and spoke on their behalf. Kath, the entire testimony wasn't recorded, but what I did see, Mr. Brighton said, My family will never be healed, never be normal. Timothy Bass must never be allowed to walk the earth as a free person. Never, ever. Tim Bass also spoke at this hearing he said, I would first like to say that I am 100% innocent of this crime. Furthermore, I do not believe I received a fair trial. After that, the judge gave him 27 years in prison, which was the maximum sentence allowed. So Kath, the reason he wasn't sentenced to life in prison is because he was convicted of felony murder, which is a lesser crime than first degree premeditated murder and this was done because prosecutors weren't sure that they would be able to convict him on the premeditated murder charge. In June 2021, the Washington State Court of Appeals affirmed Timothy Bass's conviction. Six months later, in January 2022, the Washington State Supreme Court denied review of his case. He is currently incarcerated at the Airway Heights Correction Center, located more than 500 miles southwest of Acme. His tentative release from prison is currently scheduled for January 2036. In an article in the Bellingham Herald by journalist Denver Pratt, several days after Tim Bass was convicted of her daughter's murder, Mrs. Stavick, then 82 years old, said she believed Mandy's murder was solved by a miracle. As the decades went by without an arrest, Mrs. Stavick didn't think Mandy's case would ever be solved. When Whatcom County Sheriff Bill Elfo went to her house to tell her that Mandy's killer had been arrested, it was Mrs. Stavick's 81st birthday. In this article, Mrs. Stavick also said that she personally thanked Kim Wagner for being smart and suspicious enough to collect the items that led to Bass's arrest. She believed Kim was the only one that made that conviction possible. She made it possible to get justice for Mandy.
2: Hope you enjoyed the episode.
1: Thanks for listening. Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. (laughs) If you're tired of our ads. Go to Patreon. All three of our tiers are.
2: Really super great.
1: (laughs) Ad free. Oh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And what else are our three tiers? Uh, They are ad free and you have an extra episode.
1: And if you go to higher tiers, you get to talk to us in person.
2: And hear bloopers.
1: Yes. And that's actually funnier than all of it. (laughs) (laughs) we just like hearing the bloopers again and again (laughs) hope you guys do too anyway i know this is the week before christmas and hope you all are having a very happy and safe holiday season
2: yep have a merry christmas a festive holiday season
1: and we hope everyone had a happy hanukkah
2: yes we do save big
0: on brunch for mom all in the kroger app